With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, my friend? How are you? Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, today is, I believe it's Wednesday, right? About yeah, 9 Wednesday the 45. Second. Wednesday the 2nd, <laughs> 9.45 uh, p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I guess, uh, what, 8? No, you're later than me, right? You're 10? Yeah, it's 10.44. and. Puerto Rico time, Atlantic time. Mm, that's um, right. Man, I have to tell you something. So I have probably, um, I have I have unsubscribed and um, subscribed to, to the New York Times, I think maybe like 10 times in my life. Okay. Like I just like, I'm always canceling my New York Times uh, subscription and I'm always like signing back up for it. Right mm-hmm. now I'm currently in a phase where I have, have New York Times. And, okay. And um, you know, I kind of have a little bit of a love-hate relationship. I, I enjoy reading the New York Times, despite, you know, a lot of the narr- – a lot of – despite how much I disagree with the New York Times, I enjoy reading the, reading the New York Times. It's like That's a treat for me sometimes when I have some okay. free time just to go through it because you, you do learn a lot of stuff. But I'm just like looking at the opinion page, and I can see why – I think it's like 89% of the New York Times audience are registered Democrats or they they identify as liberals. And I think only 9% of Republicans um, actually read it. Mm-hmm. And here's the opinion page. The opinion page is just a complete cesspool. Um, so here's the first one. I don't want to be a mother to a man. What? I'm just reading articles from the opinion. Okay. I don't want to be a mother to a man. All right. And then here's another one. So you think the Republican Party no longer represents the people. And then the next one is end affirmative action for rich white students. Okay. It's just the op-ed, the op-ed section in the New York Times is just silly. It's just like just the most... um kind of a hardcore progressive uh, kind of just like over virtue signaling progressive page ever. Uh, But nevertheless, I do enjoy reading the New York times. Um, I found this very interesting article about this North Korean refugee who has been sneaking back and forth across the DMZ line. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah. So he's a gymnast. He's a gymnast. He's a gymnast. This is why I like. Oh. He's a. This is why I enjoy reading it because you find just strange stories sometimes. Like I would never know about this story if um, if I didn't read the New York Times. Um, this this guy is a gymnast, a North Korean gymnast. He sneaks over 
just like, pole vault over the over the wall or some shit like <laughs> yeah because most refugees from north korea uh who go to south korea they go through china mm-hmm. and there's like you know there's there's a smuggler who gets them in um but this guy just went over the wall i don't know how one does that it's the most militarized garrison state in the world but this guy was able to pull it off one does not really simply walk through the dmz right <laughs> yeah and i'm sure you know somebody was um since it was it was news this guy made the news i'm sure somebody got you know put in front of a machine gun and blasted into pieces it into pieces jesus probably this guy um a, a lot of north korean refugees this article actually brought a lot of things to my attention they really struggle when they're in south korea if they're not in the right circumstance um, mm-hmm. if they, if they end up getting like a shitty job there, if they don't like get in touch with other North Korean refugees, if they don't like get into, uh, if, if they don't get involved into a community, a lot of them kind of, mm-hmm. they, they struggle and they live in depression. And, um, there's been a number of North Korean refugees who have returned back. They've snuck back there because, you know, they just couldn't take it. I guess it's kind of like how some prisoners actually, um, you know, Do they get out of jail. Of prison walls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, you know, yeah, you know how you ever see the movie, um, what's the movie with um, where he sneaks out of jail? Main Stephen King know. book. What the hell? Why can't I think of it? Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank Redemption. You know that the old guy he kills himself when he gets out of prison. Um, I think I don't, I don't I think, remember that movie. I've seen it, but I I was too young. I don't remember that movie very much. No, it's it's a classic movie. So he sneaks out of prison and he's, you know, he writes a letter and how he's depressed and he hangs himself. It's a sad part of the film. Um, well, I guess the same thing is going on with some North Korean refugees if they're not in the right circumstance. And I guess right now with COVID-19, a lot of these community centers, a lot of these churches where they would normally meet are closed. So hmm. um, it's been very difficult. So this guy sneaks over and he's he's um, not happy in South Korea. And then he, he sneaks back. Over the DMZ. Do the North Koreans just like ask him, hey, where you been? <laughs> Can't imagine. I don't that know. That's the end of the story. I don't, I don't oh, really? know what happened. I, I'm assuming it's once the government got his their hands on him, it wasn't great. But I mean, I don't really know what happened to him. But um, the the border chief who um, who was responsible you know, for that day is in big trouble in South Korea. Because obviously he's you can't dead. have people sneaking into oh, no. the other way around. The no, island. he's he's dead. He's dead. Well, no, yeah. the South, in South Korea he's not. Dead. Oh, he's, South Korean? Oh, never mind. Okay. Yeah. He's just like had a publicly, you know, kind of. He just kind of was humiliated. Uh, but yeah, he was able to use his gymnastic skills to sneak over twice, which is pretty That's ridiculous nuts. because just the level of militarization in the DMZ is is a, is like World War One trenches. Hmm. Um, yep. Well, that that's an interesting story, dude. Um, I, I I'd like to read that if you want to copy and paste the <laughs> that because I I honestly I don't pay for any of these um, media services. I rely on you for that. <laughs> uh, don't sue me, New York Times. Um, but here's a here's a fun little bit of news that I did read, not on the New York Times, um, and it's also about North Korea. Uh, did you hear what North Korea has been up to this week? Well, yeah, they've been up for this for the past couple of weeks. Uh, I think it's been mm-hmm. 
I think the past six weeks or so, they've launched, um, I don't forget the exact number, but I've been kind of tacitly following it, but not mm-hmm. really following it. Um, mm-hmm. But I know they launched probably the most amount of missiles um, in like such a small period of time. I think they've launched maybe like five or six in like a month period. I forget the exact time frame. I, I am already blanking on the couple of articles I read about it. Um, yep. But yeah, Kim Jong-un, I think he made his first appearance since, I think, uh, March 2020 to an actual missile launch um, mm-hmm. or missile testing. So they're going full speed. And um, what South Korea is telling the Biden administration is that, hey, like you need to be, hey, be a little bit more like how Trump was because Trump embraced him and he was willing to talk to him. And, you know, we want to mm-hmm. just talk to him and see if we can... Um, you know, maybe negotiate some sanction relief to get, uh, to um, you know get him to stop testing these missiles. And um, mm-hmm. I don't really, there's really not that much word coming out of out of the Biden administration about uh, North Korea. So it's unclear yep. what their their policy is. But yeah, what, what what did you what did you hear? Yeah, I just figured I'd, I'd give everybody a background story because we are talking today about Korea, and you know, this is a you know a fun little current event that might might be useful. Um, so yeah, as you pointed out on Sunday, what, what kind of made the news really is that North Korea fired off a, a long range ICBM into the sea. Um, and it had, uh, what these experts are calling a lofted t- trajectory. So basically like straight up and down, um, apparently just to avoid crossing like, you know, other territories of, of neighboring countries and, uh, some stats about it, it, it uh, reached a maximum altitude about. 1200 miles up and it traveled about 500 miles out uh, before it landed into the sea uh, and it flew for about 30 minutes and it landed in some waters outside of Japan's um, exclusive economic zone and uh, there weren't any reports of like damage to boats or aircraft or anything like that and and the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command um, said that there wasn't any immediate threat to the U.S. Um, but what I found interesting uh, about this story is that it you know like you said it it it, it represents a bit of a breach. So they've had North Korea that is have had a self-imposed halt on long range missile tests. So if you remember back in uh, 2018, uh, Kim Jong-un and Trump, they were like, you know, shaking hands at the DMZ (laughs) and uh, trying to work out a deal. And that didn't really work. But uh, Kim basically said at that point, you know, he was posturing a little bit and he was saying that they didn't need to do any more nuclear tests or any ICBM tests anymore. But let's be real, they were just, they stopped because they were looking for economic sanction relief, right? And since then, they've been pretty quiet, um, relatively so. You know, like we, we haven't really talked about them in, in, in a while either. Um, and what's interesting about uh, Sunday's test is that, uh, as you said, it's not the first time that they've been doing it in the last few weeks. So this was actually the seventh round of weapons launches uh, this month alone. So three days before that, uh, North Korea fired two short-range ballistic missiles into the sea. And um, just this past Tuesday, yesterday, um, they tested a pair of allegedly long-range cruise missiles. um, And there have been some other tests in earlier in January. And uh, the Japanese uh, defense minister, he was making some claims that their uh, uh, analysis is showing that uh, that that launch was the longest range weapon that they've tested uh, since November 2017, which is kind of like a long stint without, you know, any major tests. And 
you know, obviously the, the pace uh, and the timing of these tests it raises a lot of questions as to like, why the fuck are you messing around right now? And if you ask North Korea, I think their official standpoint is to, quote, defend against a perceived U.S. hostility and threats, whatever the hell that means. Um, he might be referring to some new sanctions that Biden put down recently on North Korea um, from earlier this month after they allegedly tested a hypersonic missile. Um, yeah, side I heard note about on hyper- doing that. Yeah. So side note on these hypersonic missiles, because we have we have a whole episode on that. If you have any interest in it, like listen to that. But I feel like hypersonic missiles right now are the metaverse of military technology. And what I mean by that is that everyone wants to get in on them and the media is really hyping it up and everyone thinks they have it or are about to get it, but none of it is actually real. <laughs> so, you know, it's, you know, for me, it's the metaverse of military technology field. Which is a buzz, another buzzword. Yeah, it's just one of those things, you know, one of those things that you'll hear. Um, but back to the story. So uh, last year, um, Kim announced uh, kind of a, a five-year plan for developing weapons in North Korea. And he has this huge wish list of shit that includes things like hypersonic mi- missiles. <laughs> Go figure. Earthquake spy sap. <laughs> yeah. No, that one didn't make the list, unfortunately. Tornado. But he has spy satellites. Factory. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so ICBM, so solid fueled ones, um, and also submarine launched nuclear missiles. And, you know, normally I'd sarcastically say like, good luck, you know, but fuck that. Cause no one needs a North Korea with that kind of military tech, not even, not even North Korea. Um, anyway, so some, some experts are saying that, that they might stop these tests pretty soon, like out of respect, I guess for China, not for us. Uh, and because, you know, they had the, the Beijing Olympics going on, right? Um, but that they'd start up again afterwards. And they're pointing to this very common North Korean playbook where, you know, they kind of ramp up these tests and then bargain them away for relief, which is kind of an you know ongoing trope. And some other experts, though, are saying that North Korea is feeling like neglected or something by the U.S. because all the U.S.'s attention is going to the situation in Russia, uh, in Ukraine uh, with Russia. Uh, so, you know, I don't know, maybe he's just throwing a tantrum to get Biden's attention. That could be likely. Um, but I think the real reason, and this is my honest opinion, the real reason is that diplomatic talks with North Korea's greatest enemy have gone sour. And I think they're just resuming their decades-long war against the lost city of Atlantis. Because <laughs> the velocity of Atlanta in the sea. Because they're, <laughs> I get it. Because they are firing missiles into the water, right? <laughs> um, Sorry, what, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> what I think what Moon what Moon has been saying is that the U.S. should bargain with with uh, vaccine relief. So they should give North Korea access to the vaccine. But here's the thing. North Korea does not have a single positive test of COVID-19 ever. Yeah, they, they defeated COVID. They defeated COVID. But honestly, I wouldn't really be surprised if they had a lower rate. Um, just because of the isolation? Just because of the border control and the isolation. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if they had a, a real I mean, they do um, move a, a lot between China, rate. though. So, yeah, you know, and that's where it originated. So that, that might not even be real. Um, so yeah, who, I'm not I mean, going to speculate on the COVID rates of North Korea because that's just like, you know, 
That's gonna. That's a losing argument. Kim Jong Un already invented a vaccine. Kim Jong Un himself blood. Yeah, it's his, blood. yeah, the blood, the blood of Kim Jong Un. Anyway, the, yeah. So I guess this is a pretty good jumping off point. So this is going to be part two, essentially, of our our um, episodes on the Korean War, and. Um, I think this is going to be a lot longer than we thought because initially we thought this was going to be like three episodes or four episodes, but we found it really hard to do that, um, especially because we're talking about nonsense for like 10, 15 minutes before we even talk about anything serious. Um, but today I think we're going to concentrate on, well, here's what I'll tell you. I'm going to open up the, the, the episode with a, uh, a cracked cold case. Those are always interesting. You know, okay. the most the most um, popular podcasts in the world are all like crime junkie shows. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. My fiance is always listening to crime junkie podcasts. Same. I'm actually Mer- a little concerned. I, I ask my uh, my girlfriend all the time, like, are you sure you're not just like trying to learn how to get away with killing me or something? Because <laughs> oh, well, your girlfriend <laughs> listens to, to that stuff. As yeah. Well. Yeah. It's wild. It's wild. And I hear a lot it, of it too. Cause you'll you know, like one. a lot of. J- um, SNL has a really funny uh, skit on, on that about like a bunch of girls like listen like all they watch is a uh, murder like my mm-hmm. interest is murder it's like a really funny song um, <laughs> but yeah my my fiance watches um, Criminal Minds in in Law and Order SVU just like on repeat like they're they're <laughs> always on television either Criminal Minds and mm-hmm. with Criminal Minds it's a really corny it's really bad at not good acting and you know the kind of these corny production values that you would find on like a major network but if you watch the show it's quite disturbing like the storylines are quite kind of horrific like horrific like i I watched this one episode where this killer was just killing like college-age girls it was just a disturbing thing to watch but it was so corny and the acting was so bad it had this b-movie vibe but yeah she Mm -hmm. watches that shit all day but this is going to be um we're going to open this up with um, with a murder, that a, a royal murder, a regicide, Ooh. the best type of murders. So, okay, um, tell me. Last episode, we were talking about some of the underlying conditions that led to the Korean War, and um, you know, we ended this with the the, the, the uh, decline of the Joseon dynasty and, and the rise of Japan as an imperial power. So, um, as I was saying. This November, so this happened recently, um, a major cold case was cracked. So we now know with solid proof that the Japanese assassinated the Korean empress uh, Myon Sung-gan. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Do you see that? Myung Sung. Myung Sung? Yeah. The Korean empress Myung Sung. Um, so a bunch of letters were found in a, uh, in a flea market or an antique market. Um, from um, from this Japanese diplomat, and these letters are 126 years old. And mm. these letters, he's telling his friend that he he took part in this assassination of this uh, this Empress um, Myung-sung of Korea, um, Kumachi Horiguchi, and he writes, "We killed the queen. My job was was securing entrance to the palace. We crossed the wall." And barely got into the building where we killed the queen. I was shocked to realize how easy it was. And that's what wow. the letter says. 
And I wow. guess, you know, there there had always been heavy speculation and everyone oh, kind yeah. of knew it was the Japanese who killed this 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 Korean who who uh, committed this regicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it, it was Japanese um, officials and military members. It was Japanese government that, that killed this this uh, poor woman. Um, but now this is definitive proof. Um, now, this this political murder is known as the uh, uh, Umi incident. I think I'm pronouncing that correct. Umi. Mm-hmm. Or the Gapsin um, coup. Uh, or the Gapsin coup. Um and it involved uh, groups of uh, military, J- Japanese military officers, um, diplomats, and it was storming. They stormed the palace in Seoul uh, on the morning of October 8th, 1895. And they hacked the queen to death with a sword. And then they burnt her body like she was a White Walker. <laughs> That's brutal. Um, yeah, it was a brutal. But, you know, when we were doing our episodes on, on Japan... Um, you know, we, we, we covered government by assassination, at least internally. You know, there was right. a heavy history in the 1930s and 1930s, especially um, in Japan, where just everyone was getting assassinated. Like, there was assassinations right. every single week. Like, government by assassination was the, the way that people, the observation of the day in Japan, um, because there was this fanatic nationalism going on and um, listen to those episodes we did on the Japanese nationalism to, to get the full story, though. But, um, you know, I guess this extended externally as well to their colonial subjects, because at this p- point in time, uh, I guess Japan wasn't a Korea was not yet a official colony of Japan, but they certainly were uh, kind of being grabbed into their orbit. And, and Japan was right. definitely uh, you know fighting for influence against China and Russia there. Um, so. The assassination comes after the queen tried to get help from Russia um, in an in attempt to remove Japanese influence from Korea um, after the first Sino-Japanese War. And then um, this friction here between Japan and Russia is one of the preludes of the eventual Japanese-Russo War, where uh, you know we all know that Japan shocks the world. They become, um, you know, the dominant player in Korea, and this eventually leads to their annexation. And, um, you know, the, the, the Japanese exploited, um, you know, many of the frictions that Korea already had in society to, you know, further occupy it and, and you know, get influence through landowners and things like that. But I guess, I guess maybe we should we do a, um, a quick recap or not really a recap but just kind of show where we are in the timeline right now do you, do you think we should do that yeah let's do it um okay so i think what's really important to note is that um when we're talking about korea today korea had most of the characteristics or the requirements um to be considered a nation long before many other countries. So um, common ethnicity, common language, culture. Um, they even had, you know, well-recognized national boundaries. And they've had these boundaries and they've had these characteristics of a nation since the 10th century. So um, going back hundreds of years, 1392, the Joseon dynasty was established. Seoul was its capital. Um, and then they rule for the next 500 years. Essentially, as yeah, kind of a nation state, 
Right. You know, it's a monarch, but it's kind of a nation state. Closest thing to like a unified Korean nation state. Um, the Japanese try invading in uh, 1592 for the first time where they fail. Um, and then, you know, after that, shortly after that, the Tokugawa shogunate takes over Japan in 1603. And then Japan enters its period of isolation for the next 200 years, um, limiting trade to uh, really just approved vendors to um, countries like the Dutch and, and also, you know, limited trade with China. But for the rest of the world, they, they really stopped interacting with the rest of the world. Um, now, this period ends in 1853 when Commodore Math Matthew Perry of the United States shows up to Japan and, um, you know, forces them to open up their borders. And, um, you know, the Japanese at this time, they realize how far behind they are uh, to the West in things like military technology, uh, medical technology. Um, and then they also witness the rest of Asia being bullied around by colonial powers. So what they do in response is that you know, they toss out the old shogunate system and then they restore imperial rule and they embark on the fastest quest for modernity or modernization recorded in human history so you know we're talking about a 20-year frame where they they make leaps in society and technology and their economy and industrialization that took the rest of the world over 100 years ago it was pretty incredible in in the grand context with it um and you know the reason why they were able to do it uh, there's a lot of reasons having to do with culture and, and kind of the prequest at the, the uh, kind of the same things with Korea being kind of a nation beforehand. But, you know, we cover that in our Japanese episodes. But they make this huge leap forward in technology and industrialization. Now, Japan embarks on its own imperial targets. And uh, with the first target is, is Korea, or one of its first targets is Korea. So in um, 1876, Japan forces Korea to open up its borders. And, uh, you know, they sign a series of unequal treaties. Um, and, you know, this, this signifies in just 23 years, the victim of gumbo diplomacy now becomes a new enforcer of it. And, um, you know, oh. the U.S. follows suit. The U.S., um, you know, the U.S. was allied with Japan at this time, or a friendly relationship with Japan. They, uh, you know, they signed a similar treaty with Korea just a few years later in, um, in 1882. And, um, you know, I don't know how true this is. And I don't know if you've uh, came across this prophecy. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's a, there's a prophecy that the Joseon dynasty would only last 500 years. Yeah, yeah I read that. Do you ever hear that? So, mm -hmm. I mean, that prophecy seems to be pretty right. I don't know if someone made yep. it up afterwards or what. But, you know, this... This is when it was almost 500 years to the date when the Joni, the Joseon dynasty began to implode um, due to both in, in, internal and external pressures. Um, mm -hmm. Now, in 1894, there was a peasant uprising against the Joseon dynasty. And, uh, you know, the government goes to uh, Qing China. So um, the last monarchy in China, the last dynasty in China for help. Now, um during the 500 years of the Joseon dynasty, the vast majority of Koreans were peasants. You know, they were peasants and, and uh, you know, they were working land held by, um, you know, landlords and um, aristocracies. Many were slaves. 
um, you know, s- slavery was a hereditary status that passed from generation to generation. Um, you know, Korea, Korea actually has the longest unbroken chain of slavery of any society in history. I mean, if you consider um, North Korea, I mean, if you in North Korea, they still practice slavery. Right. There's something along the lines of, I don't know how many slaves, I don't know what the exact number is, but. Interesting you know, part about interesting part about slavery in, in ancient like antiquity uh, for Korea is that um, they were kind of originally a Confucianist uh, offshoot. At least that's how they governed. And while they had slaves, it was almost like looked down upon to mistreat slaves. And they did offer some like outs for slaves. Like you could you know, buy your way out for freedom or you can set you know slaves free and that was that was all part of the the bargain now it, it doesn't excuse at all the fact that they <laughs> that they practice slavery at all um and there were definitely periods of time where where slavery was encouraged and and was quite brutal um but it, it's very fascinating to read about it um and a lot of the we actually didn't really cover that too much in our last episode uh because we just didn't really didn't really fit uh with the rest of the 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 flow but it's pretty interesting it's pretty interesting stuff they they did slavery slightly differently than than what you would imagine i guess you can call it indentured uh serfdoms or serfs or indentured servitude it kind of it it was kind of like that yeah i mean i guess the the uh you know indentured servitude you know in in the west as an example was was you know pretty different but it's i think it would be closer to indentured servitude than slavery but you know, that's just splitting hairs. Slavery, slavery. You know, if you're forcing somebody to do something against their will, you know, whether or not there are conditions that they can be set free or whether or not they were put there of their own volition is, is irrelevant. You know, it's just slavery. Well, here are the two themes that are that I think are going to characterize a lot of the, the future episodes in this episode of, of uh, some of the main reasons and causes for the Korean War and um, you know we're, we're going to get into how violent it was in, in probably another episode it is Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. But it was these, you know, these two factors, the internal factor being the the vast inequities um, in, in, in Korean society, 
due to these systems, due to like a peasantry and peasant class and in an aristocratic class, and then external forces like the Japanese Empire coming in there and using and abusing these divisions for their own colonial role. Um, now, this this peasant rebellion that that happens um, causes an intervention from China. And this intervention from China is what kicks off the Sino-Japanese War in 1894, which absolutely humiliates China. Um, you know, this um, this loss of Korea as a tributary state, because historically they were a tributary state in some regard. And um, it kind of marks the, the end of or the shift in regional dominance in East Asia from uh, China to Japan. And, um, you know, it... it you know that further that loss to Japan, it, it it further delegitimizes that government to the point where it ceases to exist. Only 15 years later, uh, the Qing Dynasty falls in 1911. Um, now, um, Japan further solidifies its influence in Korea after they defeat Russia in the Russo-Japanese War, and uh, Korea officially becomes a Japanese protectorate. And then by 1910, that's when Korea just formally annexed Japan. Or excuse me, that's when um, Japan just formally annexes Korea, and um, you know they they abolish the Joseon Dynasty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, that's a quick recap to where where we are, or I don't know if it's a recap because we, we didn't cover a lot of that in our last episode, but that's where we are in this way right stage. now. The Japanese are taking, they have annexed Korea. They are the major player there. The Joseon Dynasty is done. There is no longer exists, and now there's. Um, certain fractions and 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 um, things in society that they can exploit, and um, you know, the Japanese become, by all accounts, they become brutal tyrants. Yep, for sure. I want to pull it back a little bit and talk um, kind of about the immediate preceding conflicts against the Japanese uh, before that annexation, uh, and and specifically, I want to bring up an important group uh, that we talked about in the last episode. Uh, do you remember the Righteous Army? We talked about it a little bit in the last one. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, so a little reminder for those who haven't listened to that last episode. So between like 1592 and 1598, the Japanese daimyo, uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, right, he tries to invade the Asian continent. So we talked about that a little uh, a little earlier in the timeline. Um, but he is eventually stopped by... Uh, kind of a, a coalition between the Korean military, like the actual uh, uh, military, but also the Chinese Ming dynasty helps out a bunch. And this new army of this kind of a irregular Korean militia, and they're known as the Righteous Army. And the Righteous Army was kind of a ragtag group uh, of Korean patriots uh, but they were very much celebrated heavily in Korean culture for their valor in repelling the Japanese invasion. Of course, they, they really couldn't have done it without the, the Ming dynasty's help, but nevertheless, their contributions were greatly appreciated and, and to many respects still are to this day in Korea. All right, so well, this group, they end up getting a huge resurgence, you know, uh, we're talking about 1592 was the last major time that they popped up. They pop up again uh, in the years that lead up to the Japanese occupation. 
and their numbers grow rapidly after that cold case that we just solved by uh, that Queen Young Sung's murder. Uh, you know, because this, this, this during the Gapsing coup, and obviously it pissed a lot of people off that you know their queen was murdered, uh, and there was at the time many in, in a very in a crude in, in a very crude it, it's uh, brutal. way, a very brutal yeah. crude way, and unapologetic as well. Yeah, totally. And, and obviously, it took it us. <laughs> I couldn't believe how easy it was. No, it, it took us until what last November to like finally solve that case. But even then, at that time, you know, in the early 1900s, they they knew the Koreans knew Japanese were behind this shit. And what this turns into is you know a resurgence of this, you know, the this righteous army. Because this righteous army initially helped repel the Japanese invaders back in the day. So, like, everybody's, like, bringing it back up. Kind of like, um, oh, what's a good example for this? You know, like, like if we if we brought back, if the British start fucking around with us again and we brought back the Minutemen. You know what I mean? It's, like, same idea. Or, no, the right? Sons of Liberty. Yeah, something like that, you know? That's a badass name, um, Sons of Liberty. Yeah. So... You know, the same thing happens there. And what they do is they start attacking the Japanese army, Japanese merchants, pro-Japanese bureaucrats in retaliation for this, this you know, assassination. And, you know, shortly after the, you know, during the, the Japan, why did I say it that way? Japan, the Japan-Korea uh, Treaty of 1907, um, the Korean army was disbanded. And a lot of the troops from that army uh ends up joining the righteous armies and in addition to all of those former soldiers the group was made up of all kinds of koreans so poor peasants there were a lot of those uh but also like things like fishermen tiger hunters which seems like a really good fit for you know uh, uh, a warrior uh, miners merchants uh, you know other laborers um so it's just like a bunch of people right just a bunch of guys you know and they were all commanded by regular Koreans too. So it wasn't just like military, like top military brass that, that you know, uh, came from the military. And that, that really adds to the appeal of this, you know, organic nationalist militia. Uh, and it's definitely a huge, um, uh, like, identity point for North Korea later. We'll talk about that, I think, probably in another show. Um, but in 1907, the, the Righteous Army, they end up deploying a massive force, like something like 10,000 troops to like try and take back Seoul. And they came within miles of the city. So they got real close, uh, but they couldn't hold out against the Japanese. They fielded something like 20,000 soldiers and they were also backed by warships too. So they, they just didn't stand a chance. Um, they end up retreating uh, and this like, insurrection war went on for about two more years with heavy losses so i think it was over seventeen thousand righteous army soldiers were killed and more than thirty-seven thousand were wounded in combat so real bloody real just you know terrible war um and most of the resistance armies end up getting hunted down by the japanese imperial army and they they get split up into smaller groups um, and a lot of them end up going to assist in the war, uh, from different places. So places like China, Siberia, and the Baktu mountains in Korea. 
Um, but spoiler alert, they didn't succeed. Um, and many of the surviving members end up fleeing to places like Manchuria. And that's going to be important for later, specifically for... Kim, that's going to be extremely um, important for summer. later. Yeah. Um, put a... Make sure if you bookmark... If you're going to bookmark anything in this episode, um, the... That's one of them. <laughs> this is like probably one of the main parts of uh, of the origin story of the Korean War that, that you need to you need to know. Um, basically, right. the remnants of, of this army, they go to Mancheria and they assist with fighting the Japanese after the Japanese invade. And one of the one of the um, main leaders of this of this faction is the supreme leader himself. So Kim Il Sung. Um, yeah, it's Kim Il Sung. But we're gonna get deeper. We'll, we'll get deeper into that later. Mm-hmm. So um, I feel like today we 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 are gonna mostly focus on the Japanese occupation of Korea and. And kind of the conditions and, and what it was like for the culture and for the people of Korea at the time. And uh, Henry, you found something really interesting. Uh, do you want to read it or should I? That that time machine from the New York Times, that really old article. Uh, why don't you read it? Because you're uh, people say that you're better at reading. So yeah, we're trying to take your advice. I've been trying not to interrupt Henry and and also. He's been trying to let me read more. <laughs> um, so this is a super old uh, New York Times little little clip. This was back in March 18th, 1919. I think this is really like just sets the stage um, for, you know, what happened. The, the article um, headline is tell of Japanese cruelty to the Koreans. American missionaries say there is a reign of terror throughout the country. So March 17th. Uh, American mis- missionaries, were, by the way, this is like in print, not in like actual text. So some of this is a little, little hard to read. So if I, if I fuck up, my apologies. It's a, it's a picture. Um, it's an old, it's a picture in PDF it's, it's like form. It's not digitized. Yeah, it's a scan. Yeah. So uh, American missionaries report barbarous cruelties inflicted on the Koreans of which they were witnesses. One observer declares that during these last 10 days, he has seen acts which seem like stories of the Germans in Belgium. Helpless women and children have been beaten, kicked, and stabbed, they say, as well as shot down by soldiers for no other crime than shouting hurrah for Korea. The missionaries say that the cause of the independence movement lies in 10 years of oppression and cruel treatment of the natives. From the beginning of strict orders were issued by the leaders that there should be no fighting nor opposition, no matter what the Japanese did, and the people have no arms. On occasions, where Christians were in the majority, they submitted almost every instance to arrest and cruel treatment. Where bloodshed occurred, the first uh, the soldiers first fired on the helpless crowds and infuriated non-Christian patriots returned violence for violence. The Koreans, the missionaries say, hope by peaceful means to enlighten the world to the fact that they are ground under by military tyranny. They have no civil government and are taxed without representation Scores of American missionaries, some of whom have been subjected to the indignities, testify to the continuance of the reign of terror throughout the entire country. So that was that. Pretty crazy, I think. Uh, and really good find, dude. How do you find that shit? Um, I just have, I just read the New York Times. Like, I'll just read the New York Times and they link to their old stuff. Like, uh, that's it. That's why I'm so smart. I'm an educated New York liberal. <laughs> 
Well, who reads let's, the let's New York. No, I'm, a, I'm a stereotype from uh, I'm a Park Slope New York Times subscriber. I hate <laughs> myself. Look at that. Look at you. All right. So let, let's talk about this this period, you know, of annexation and, and police rule. So, uh, like we said before, by by 1910, you know, Japan's in full swing, right? And they put down all these rebellions and. You know, Korea ends up getting annexed uh, by Japan. And at this time, the number of Japanese settlers in Korea had reached over 170,000, which comprised the largest single community of Japanese people outside of Japan in the world at the time. And uh, fun fact, today that community is Brazil. Did you know that? Because the most Japanese people outside of Japan, Brazil. Yeah, I did know that. Yeah, very Thomas Sowell writes about that a lot. Yeah, that's how I know. Thomas Sowell writes in the, in his book, um, um, "White Liberal, Black Redneck." He actually mm-hmm. writes about like different communities that have gone to different countries and have have uh, like succeeded in a large degree. And he writes a lot about like Jewish success, and then he writes a lot, and then he writes about Chinese success in like Malaysia and Indonesia, and then he writes mm-hmm. about. Um, he writes a lot about the Japanese success in in, uh, in Brazil and just like why yep. some groups end up go to countries and then they just are able to like be. It, it's interesting, but yeah, that's yeah. how I know that from. So, so during this period, um, Japan they end up prioritizing Korea's uh, quote Japanization uh, during their occupation, and they accelerated a lot of the industrialization of Korea. Um, and, and they had started on this well before they actually occupied it. And I think they were just probably on this industrialization kick, right? They're like, hey, we got our shit together in 23 years. We're going to do it everywhere. Um, but this, this ends up getting accelerated once they, they formally occupied and annexed um, Korea. And um, they, they end up building a bunch of roadways and railways. Uh, they improved a bunch of roads and, and ports. And, and they heavily, heavily invested in economic development. Uh, one interesting stat, the GNP, or that's the gross national product. So that's a, an economic measure uh, of the success of a, na- of a nation. So this, this ended up growing steadily, um, basically right up to the war for independence um, in Korea. And Korea's GNP at the time almost matched that of Japan, which is pretty incredible. Um, now, you, you probably hear that and you think, well, that's not so bad. You know, sounds like a good thing. But it's it's not like the Japanese invested into Korea's modernization and economic growth for the Korean people. You know, they, they did this to fuel their own empirical escapades and also to make themselves look like, you know, oh, look at us, we're a benevolent ruler of Korea. They weren't. They weren't that at all. We bring economic development to the, to the backwater. Yeah, that, that's yeah, the justification. That the... And, and what's interesting is that, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of these, a lot of the Japanese industrialization actually takes place in the north, right? not in the south. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, what's, what's interesting about it is that, you know, as you mentioned before, Henry, Korea had most of those prerequisites for nationhood. So, you know, ethnicity, language, culture, national boundaries, you know, and, and this definitely posed a threat to the legitimacy of Japan's annexation. It, you know, it, it definitely wasn't like Crimea, for example, right? Where a majority of the, of the people in Crimea were ethnically Russian, you know? Um, Japan had to manufacture a claim 
like a like a legitimate claim to Korea. And they had to make sure that the people that stayed there were, you know, they, that they stayed in the fold, so to speak. And and the results of this were just brutal. So a couple ways uh, that they legitimized their annexation and also subsequently suppress nationalist uprising. I guess they they thought that some of the best ways to control Korea was just to crush Korean history and culture. Like that was the, you know, that was their MO. And one way that they wanted to make sure the Koreans, you know, stayed in line were that they made sure that they were taught the quote, right history. I think you can probably guess what I'm getting at here. You know, uh, they rewrote the history books, <laughs> you know, and it became a crime to teach history from non-approved books. And, and of course, book burnings were a regular occurrence. And it's estimated that something like 200,000 historical documents end up getting burned by the Japanese, uh, which, which reminds me of a quote um, from Heinrich Heine, who is a Jewish-born poet uh, who wrote in 1821, a uh, very famous line, where they burn books, they will ultimately burn people also. Uh, that, that ends up becoming an eerie prophecy that became true during the Nazi regime in Germany. But, um, I mean, I haven't re- heard any specific accounts of Japanese burning Koreans, except for the, the queen. <laughs> um, but, I mean, poetically, you can kind of say that the Japanese did burn down Korea during their annexation. Um Another super obvious idea uh, that the Japanese had uh, was to get rid of the language, the Korean language. You know, schools and, and universities were basically forbidden from using Korea, Korean. Um, even movies, uh, this was interesting, movies were made in Japanese by imperial decree. So they like forced their media into Japanese. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you're going to get to this or not, but... The um, Korean aristocrats, they they adopted Japanese names. Yep, going to get into that for sure. Yeah. Um, but speaking of names, uh, they renamed the whole country. They called it Chosen, uh, which was a name that was uh, internationally recognized through the, basically through the end of the Japanese occupation. And uh, uh, Korea, or Chosen, it was administered by a governor general um, out of Seoul, which was also renamed to Kaijo. So basically, they were just changing all of the names to Japanese ones, right? Um, Wait a minute. I just tor- want to. I just want to. Mm-hmm. I don't. Sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to make no, a, you're good. a quick a quick observation. So you know, I I so I like to watch like weird war propaganda, uh-huh. or I used to. And um, I found like these clips of like these Japanese footage, and um, it's of them like arriving in South Korea. I'm not sure exactly where it was. It was like some port city. It was somewhere on the water, and like everyone is just so happy to see the Japanese Imperial <laughs> Army coming. And it's I don't know what they were saying at all, but you hear like. Um, and it's just about how um, just so actually no, I don't think there was Japanese. any voices. I'm making it up in my head because I just imagined that's what they were saying in the background. The <laughs> silent film still, but they were just like that's oh, racist, they're, Henry. They're so happy. 
I'm sorry to sorry to interrupt. No, you're good. You're good. Um, but uh, you you asked about the name things, right? You mentioned that too. So that definitely happened, right? Uh, Japan ends up forcing people to change their names. And what's interesting about it is that at first the the Japanese government made it illegal for people to take Japanese names. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, you know. Probably they didn't want these Koreans to, you know, pretend like they were Japanese. And and then also there was there was some like weird uh, issues with like regist- registries, you know, like they didn't want to confuse people. Um, so, but but eventually they got around to the idea that like, hey, no, actually we should we should make them change their names to to um, to Japanese names just to kind of further solidify the the Japanization and getting rid of the Korean language and culture. So in 1939, the government basically makes changing your name an official policy. And something like 84% of all Koreans took Japanese names. Um, and and the reason why they did that was because people who didn't have a Japanese name was just not officially recognized by the Japanese government. Um, they were basically shut out of everything. Uh, so you, didn't, you couldn't get mail. You couldn't get your ration cards. You couldn't do shit. Right, it was it was crazy, and this is just like a further way to disrupt the Korean language. You know, just like like if, if they're not even using the the language of their names, you know, then it's just another way to kill off kill off that part of the culture. Yeah, um, it's a cultural the, genocide. It's just mm-hmm. it's um, destroying the culture, just destroying the idols, destroying any sense of nationalism, and that's right. Um, well, I mean, speaking of idols, they do exercising that too. the unity of you know that, that exercising that type of uh, national unity that could uh, you know be manufactured used as a rallying unity. point to um, that's right to not like you. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was going to say it's good that you pointed out the idols uh, because they they just straight up start removing or changing like these cultural landmarks of Korea. Um, one of the most um, famous. Uh, uh, sites that they fucked around with was the um it was the royal palace the gyeongbokgung and i'm hoping that i'm saying that right um and that was uh built in seoul way back in 1395 by the joseon dynasty so this thing is like old old right and super super important you know iconic landmark to the korean culture um and the japanese end up tearing down over a third of the complex and you know, kind of like stick a finger in your eye, they take the rest of it, whatever was left over, and they turn it into like a tourist trap for Japanese visitors. Um, honestly, it really makes like these like cries in the US about, you know, removing statues here. It, it makes it, that look like it's just whining. You know, this was a major, major site. Uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's child it's child's play when you're going into other nations and then destroying their idols and changing their names. Like imagine if I, of another country came into the United States and like, let's just say they went to Mount Rushmore and they engraved like different faces, different faces it. on them. Right. They, right. they, um, they engraved, uh, uh, president G, uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, <laughs> Kim Jong Un and, um, <laughs> who else? Who, who else don't we like? Bashir Al-Assad. Duterte. I don't know. Or, <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. Actually, I have a funny story about this. Um, uh, I recently, about statues and, and removing them, um, there was a story recently um, in Puerto Rico uh, that the king 
uh, of Spain was coming to Puerto Rico to like commemorate 500 years of, you know, Puerto Rico's founding colonialization, uh, which is troublesome because <laughs> uh, maybe we'll end up doing a story on this at some point uh, about the colonization of Puerto Rico because uh, it's a very sad story. But um, so a lot of the a lot of anti-colonialists here in, in Puerto Rico, and there's there's a lot of groups uh, here uh, and for good reason, reason they um, they get pissed that the king. Did, I didn't even know there was still a king of fucking Spain. But the king of Spain, they're were, they were just mad that he's coming, you know, to just basically celebrate 500-year history of, of, you know, colonialist rape on, <laughs> on Puerto Rico. And they go to old San Juan and they tear down this statue to Juan Ponce de Leon, who was the governor, the first governor of Puerto Rico. Um, and they, they just tore it down. The Puerto Rican government ends up putting it back up. And uh, I think they're they're starting to do some talks about you know what to do about that particular statue and and some of the others. But you know this group, um, it's like oh, they had such a good name too. I'm forgetting it. Oh man, uh, it's a shame that I've forgotten it. Um, it's it's something crazy like you know the Borinquen militia or some shit like that. You know it's crazy. Um, they they end up saying that they're coming for Columbus next. You know, we have, there's, there's a pretty big statue of Columbus um, in San Juan. And also I found out what that- What are they, anti-Italian? The anti- uh, <laughs> They're just anti- I know you are. Man. You're anti-Italian. You hate it. You're a racist against Italians. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of these a lot of these statues are super old, right? So the I forget exactly how old. I went and visited it. Uh, I'll send a picture on Patreon uh, later of me flipping the, the, the bird to uh, Juan Ponce de Leon. Um, but you know, a lot of these statues are super, super old. It's not like, you know, some of the ones here in the United States that were created in the sixties, you know, and then subsequently taken down. Now this one, some of these are like hundreds of years old. And what's interesting about it is that very recently, uh, Puerto Rico got a statue, a giant statue, the biggest statue in, um, in the West, in the West hemisphere. Uh, to Christopher Columbus. It's massive. It's, I think, if I'm remembering this correctly, it's two times the size of the Statue of Liberty without the pedestal. It's absolutely ungodly large. Um, and it just kind of popped up in like 2016, <laughs> you know? So it's, that pissed off a lot of people, uh, understandably so. But anyway, I, I guess uh, I'm kind of going off point here. Uh, the point I was trying to make was that you know, the Koreans are losing a lot of their cultural heritage, you know, some that are, you know, hundreds of years old, you know, and some that are even thousands of years old because the Japanese are trying to basically kill um, the Korean history and the Korean culture because they think it's the right, it's the way to solidify their their control and, and, and assim- force assimilate the people. But kind of a bit of a 180 here. You know, the Japanese also tried to preserve some aspects of Korean art and history and culture, but for literally all the wrong reasons. Um, so they, they, they end up trying to preserve some things, you know, uh, basically to make this image of themselves internationally as a like a civilizing ruler. And they were basically painting Korean history and culture as backwards and primitive 
And, you know, they, they just kept these tokens around to remind everybody, you know, of how great Japan is and how all the great things that they've done for Korea, super similar to their investments, you know, in infrastructure and, and the economy of, of Korea. And they did such a good job at it that even some Koreans started buying into this bullshit. And I'll talk more about that later, but, um, you know, they, they, they did a bunch more. Uh, they infiltrated Korean culture uh, through religion, which is wild. Um, you know, the Japanese, they started building these Shinto shrines in Korea and forcing people to go and worship at them. Uh, one really big project uh, that's both related to this religion, but also related to taxation without representation. You know, it was the, the shrine of 1000 steps and that was built in 1925. Um, and it was uh, built in large part by forced Korean donations. So basically they forced Koreans to like pay for this crazy Shinto shrine. And surprisingly, it's still around, um, but it's a park now. Um, what's fucked up about it is that basically they were making Koreans go worship the dead emperors and like spirits of soldiers who helped to invade or conquer Korea. And they also made them pay for the facility to do so, you know? So it's just like, it's kind of messed up, man. I don't know. I don't know what to think about that. It's just wild. You know, it's funny. It's, um, you know, I was just, I was just thinking that, you know, when we were covering the ethnic origins of Jap Japan, it's most mm -hmm. likely that the, the Joman are from that part of the world. Like they're from Korea. <laughs> yeah. Like the early yeah. the early settlers of Japan. Um the the I guess specifically the Joman and then um the um the um what's the second group? The the the, the Yeyo. Um they were most likely from from Korea. Yeah. Yeah. You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update, wherever you get your podcasts. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And I mean, it's, it's just nuts, man. It, the way that the Japanese distorted 
you know, the, the religion and, and, you know, building this, this, you know, Shinto shrines and turning all the Koreans into Shintoists were like, it's like they were saying like, oh, look, we're all Japanese. You know, we even pray the same way and we pray to the same gods and look at us in our unity and, you know, stupid shit like that. But what's sad about it is that, you know, some Koreans actually start believing in Shintoism, you know, that like at first definitely out of fear because they thought, you know, shit, we're going to die if we don't do this. And then kind of like out of habit, you know, so it's, it's pretty wild. Um, and I know that there are plenty of like examples of forced, you know, uh, religion, religious changes uh, throughout history, but it, it's hard to read in, in general, you know, when you, when you, when you, you know, forced someone to adopt something as personal as a, as a belief system, like a, a faith-based belief system, that's, you know, that's, that's a, that's a very personal thing to do to somebody, you know? Um, so there's, there's also uh, a lot of forced migration. This is really important too. Um, which is, it's just another big way that, uh, Japan tried to destabilize Korean culture. And this really ends up ramping up during world war two. Um, by the end of world war two, there were over 2 million Koreans in Japan. Uh, most of them were repatriated back to Korea after Japan surrendered, but over a half million ended up staying and they represent a very unique and interesting culture in Japan. I forget the exact name of that community. Um, but, you know, forced migration specifically for labor, it kind of was like already in, in the plan, like it already existed for many, for many years. Um, but in 1939, there was, you know, some huge shortages of Japanese males for obvious reasons, right? They're at war. And this led to an official policy to draft Koreans into wartime labor in mainland Japan. And initially, uh, this was facilitated uh, through Japanese collaborators, um, which I don't think we'll have time to talk about today. Um, but, you know, eventually what it turns into is, you know, to, to increase the pace of, of you know, these, these drafts, they, the Japanese basically use coercion to get people to, to move. Yeah, kind of like, you know, we'll kill you and your family if you don't go to Japan to work, which is wild. Um, but it wasn't just in Japan. So there, there were over 5 million um, people that were conscripted to work, mostly in mines and factories and things like that. Um, and mostly they, they were, you know, put to work in Korea and in Manchuria, but a lot of them end up going to Japan and other places. And, you know, the conditions were just terrible. Uh, many of them were forced to work to death you know, hours of nonstop hard labor, food shortages, very little to no access to healthcare. I mean, you name it, it was, it was a concentration camp, you know, like it, it was, I don't think there's any other way to put it. You know, in Manchuria alone, there were something between 300 and 800,000 Korean deaths from forced labor, which is no small amount of people. Um, and that's kind of hard to swallow. Um, and it, it was all part of their plan. They, they wanted to move people around, you know, to it's, it's harder for them to identify with their culture if they're not in their place, you know, of origin. And, and it's just doubly disgusting when, you know, when you, it's not just that they're moving them around, it's that you're also forcing them into hard labor to, you know, propel their war effort and to keep them in hegemony. It's, it's, um, it's just disgusting. Um, all right. Last one, I think before one last heinous crime, before I think we should wrap this up. Uh, and this one's kind of tough you to talk, talk about. about. Yeah. You're going to talk about the sex slavery. Yeah. 
it's it's super hard to talk about. Um, so you know, during World War II, there was uh, a really fucked up program of sex trafficking women, and they were like you said, they were called comfort women. Um, the Japanese army they they end up recruiting thousands of women. Uh, the estimates are range a lot, um, and mostly be, for a reason that I'll get into later. But I've seen from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands, right? So it just it's a lot. It's thousands of women, uh, and they they basically recruited these women from occupied territories uh, to be used as sex slaves, um, mostly from China and the Korean Peninsula, but also a, a bit from Southeast Asian uh, countries that they were occupying during the war. Sometimes these women were just straight up abducted from their homes, you know, uh, and placed into comfort stations um, for the Japanese soldiers to rape. Um, but in, in a lot more cases, uh, women were lured uh, with the promises of either work in a factory or in a restaurant. Uh, a lot of them were promised to be nurses uh, in Japanese army bases. But once they got there, they, they were just imprisoned. Uh, and, and used as sex slaves. And, and that's how that's how it works today. You know, when, yeah. with sex trafficking, most a lot of these girls are just promised stuff like a job or employment in like another country. And then they're they arrive and they're forced into. That's right. Um, into they're they're trafficked and they're forced into prostitution. Mm hmm. One, one I mean, um, it's easy to it's easy to recruit people out when they're desperate. Yeah. And, and trust me, the Koreans were desperate, desperate. And, you know, I don't know if I want to say that this is interesting, but one point that I found that was noteworthy was that, uh, that a lot of these women were generally in good health. Uh, and they were, you know, periodically checked up on medically, you know, to make sure that they didn't spread disease uh, among the Japanese ranks. But again, this wasn't for them. It was to protect the soldiers who were taking advantage of them, which is just disgusting. Uh, I think it's important to note though, um, really important to note that the, the conditions that, that these women suffered under, you know, were prolonged uh, and very traumatic. And, you know, for obvious reasons, this topic is hard to talk about because, you know, I just don't like talking about rape. I, it's, it's hard to talk about. But it's also controversial because a lot of women's groups uh, across the world, but it's specifically in Asia, you know, accuse the Japanese government of, of basically like rape denial uh, on this topic. Um, and, you know, there, there have been a lot of very bad arguments um, basically against the, the practice of comfort women, you know, basically saying that it didn't happen. Um, and a lot of those arguments center around the fact that there wasn't any documented evidence that proved it until, of course, we found it. And that actually happened, I think, in 1996. We found some really good definitive proof. And it was, you know, it like cracked case wide open, made, made international news. And, and you know, the, the international community actually ended up having to step in uh, through the UN and, and other, and other uh, parties. Uh, in the early 90s to get Japan to basically like 
to force them to incorporate teaching about comfort women in their school curriculum because there was this huge media blitz you know in Japan around that time from uh, from these very right-wing like Japanese deniers uh, who were basically trying to whitewash the whole situation and it was really messed up um, but I don't think there's a question anymore you know they're, they're uh, about whether or not this occurred you know that we've since been able to find a lot of evidence to prove this and and of course there were so many you know survivors uh, of this absolutely horrific um, practice uh, that that had have come out and have been vocal for many years about about that situation it's 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 really messed up that's that's really all I have to say I don't, I don't really know what else to say about it yeah man it's just whenever we talk about Imperial Japan, I just always have a real hard time just being like the Japanese did all that. Hmm. Like I still, I still like have that, that reaction to whenever I read about Imperial Japan and about like a lot of the atrocities and it makes sense in like a morbid way when you look at like the full history and how fanatic the nationalism was at the time and, um, you know, how, um, how brutal how government the empire acts was, when they're when, when they're influenced by Hark with that, um, mm-hmm. but you know when you look at you know uh, denial and stuff like that, and you look at kind of like the cycle, you want you want to look at like cycles and and, and um, repeated patterns, and you know with Japan during the imperial period, I mean that was a repeated pattern as far as like uh, sex crimes and stuff like that with the imperial Japanese army. I mean if you yeah. ever read the book. Um, you know, a real kind of morbid book. It's, it's a very tough book to read. Is um, it's uh, the rape of Ding King. Yeah, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I've, I've talked about this. It's a pretty tough book to read. It's it's um, you know, probably the most noted war tro- uh, Japanese war atrocity against the Chinese when they sacked the city uh, named King at the time it was the capital. Um, and you know, they there was hard evidence that. The book presented um, enough evidence that Japan was enga- the Imperial Japanese Army was engaging in um, incentivized murder. Like when I say incentivized murder, they were um, like newspaper articles that were like congratulating Japanese soldiers who were like killing civilians. Like this weren't guy they like scalping off, people, right? Like they were bringing they back were chopped, They were they were um running around with swords and chopping people's heads off and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. there, there was like in the Japanese press there was like guy scores all-time high score basically chopped off like 150 people's heads. Like it was really really morbid. And the the writer of this book Iris Chang she actually kills her. She, I mean she um I know that she had problems with the Japanese government because she was writing these books and she was releasing another book at the time about a lot of the war crimes I think in the Philippines like that was her next mm-hmm. book about Japanese war crimes in the Philippines and um, she had killed her she had killed herself um, while writing that book um, I'm obviously not I'm not getting into like conspiratorial ter- conspiratorial zone because I read about this and she was dealing with like a lot of depression and I think she might have had some sort of schizophrenia uh, this, mm-hmm. this woman um, just based off like interviews with her family and stuff, but very, very tragic. And I have to think that engaging and um, 
exposing yourself to this much uh, morbid history and this type of um, these kind of horrible things, just being in it and writing a book about it. I certainly couldn't write a book about sex slavery or or, no. or uh, repeated abuses and things like that over a long no, period I mean, of time. I think I, it would drive me crazy. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think it, I think it would just drive in this last 15, 20 minutes just talking about it. <laughs> you know, like it's it's it yeah. makes me super uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, here here's something that I've read and I'm not I've read this. I'm not making this claim. So before you jump down, my before anyone jumps down my throat for saying this, but I've read stuff about studies about how, if people who like who um, historians and um, people who specialize in this type of um, like in war crimes, like really morbid, really morbid war crimes and sex crimes and stuff like this, who are like writing books about it and doing like heavy research on it. They actually suffer from some type of PTSD. They like they develop traits of PTSD from doing that after a while. Mm-hmm. And um, I can believe it. You know, I can believe that. It, when I was first getting into the, um, this is off topic, but I think kind of relates. When I was first really reading into the Syrian War and ISIS and stuff like that, and I was I got like probably a little bit more into it than my mental health could handle. Um, I was having really weird dreams all the time. Mm. Um, it was um, wasn't great. It wasn't like you. You're not happy when you do this stuff. No. Um, but yeah, I I I, I feel you. Um, and then you know. Um, but I guess the ultimate point I was trying to make is that uh, yeah, it's 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 messed up and it's just crazy that the um, the um, the it just it's it's almost unprecedented. Like I always. When I read about imperialism in like the old days, like, you know, old imperialism, um, I always come across the Japanese and it's like uniquely brutal. Mm-hmm. Like even compared to the, like the French and the British and, you know, all these European countries, all these countries did all horrible atrocities and they did horrible things to natives and stuff like that. But then when I read about the Japan, it's always kind of like uniquely brutal. I'm like, man, that was just uniquely brutal. Like right. them and then like the, the, the King Leopold. Of, mm-hmm. uh, of Brussels, <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the in the Congo, it's like mm-hmm. the like the imperial powers were just like, what? Did you really have to do that? Right. Um, right. All right. You want to add this? You want add this? Do you want to uh, wrap this thing up? Yeah, I just have or a few anything else closing thoughts. I think you know, sure. Kind of had a bit of a bummer episode for the last you know half or more, uh, and I guess the reason why. I wanted to spend some time talking about, you know, the conditions of the Japanese occupation is because I think it really sets up a real good framework for the war of independence in Korea, you know, and specifically, and this is something that, that we've chosen not to talk about for this episode, because I think it's worth fleshing out a bit more, you know, a lot of the a lot of these atrocities that were that were imparted on the Korean people by the Japanese were done with the collaboration of Koreans themselves. There were a lot of Koreans who, you know, basically engaged in these practices as well, or they sold these women into 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 sex slavery. They, you know, they 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 sold people into forced migration. Uh, among many other things, you know, they joined the Japanese 
army. They joined the police forces and, and enforced these practices. They're, in many ways, the Koreans, them, they, the Japanese turned the Koreans on themselves. And why I think that's so important for the war for liberation is that, and, and we'll, we'll talk more about this in the next episode that we have on this, is that the North Koreans... You know, they're the, the righteous freedom fighters, the righteous army that fled, you know, from the Japanese because they were too powerful at the time. They fled into Manchuria and, you know, they helped out in China with, you know, with their war for independence, their communist revolt. And, you know, in, in many ways today, we look at North Korea as like the bad guy and South Korea as the good guy. But when we look at it in this context, Many of the you know, people that, st- that were fighting for freedom against Japanese oppression end up being the leaders of North Korea. And many of the Japanese collaborators, the ones who were helping the Japanese carry out all of these atrocities, end up being the leaders of South Korea. And I think that kind of turns things on its head and it's something that probably a lot of Americans just don't even realize, um, and a lot of people in general. It's it's yeah it's pretty wild you know um, yeah I think this I think this series uh, will will uh, change a lot of people's uh, preconceived notions because when we start getting into the war uh, well first and foremost I think next episode we're going to tackle the rise of Kim Il Sung yep and then. Um, so how that all happened and then um when we get into the actual korean war a lot of the most brutal war crimes were south koreans against north koreans Mm -hmm. um now i'm not trying to say before you're like you fucking commies (laughs) we're not commies at all um and we don't like the North Korean government. No, I hate the North. Like we both hate the North Korean government. It's right. horrible. It's the worst government on pl- on the planet, right? By far, by far. I don't think there's a worst. Go- there's not a. There's there's not another one except in, unless you throw Eritrea up there. Um, maybe, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but North Korea is the worst government on planet Earth. Um, so we're not saying it, but we're just trying to uh, go over a complicated history that. Because South Korea, you have to remember, South Korea was a kind of a cesspool, or that's not a great word. Maybe no. it is. South Korea was was um, didn't start passing North Korea economically until the late seventies, right? You know, they didn't become a democracy until late in the twentieth century. They didn't immediately become South Korea after World War II or after the Korean War, like the South Korean that we know right now. It used to be highly a highly corrupt um, kind of kleptocracy for a very long time, and then that's right. It started adopting more, you know, free economic practices, and then it developed into you know one of the strongest economies in the world. But um, you know, for a while, it was it was on like a, a lot of the industrial cities were actually in the north, which mm-hmm. gave them a you know, a huge, a huge advantage, but also having the industrial centers in North Korea also uh, made them huge targets for uh, NATO bombings. And what you'll find that really interesting is that 
more cities in North Korea were wiped off the face of the earth during the Korean War than cities in Japan and Germany. During World War II. More civilians died in North Korea during during the Korean War in North than in Japan. You would think that, oh yeah, well, we not we the United States obliterated cities, you know, basically weekly during the last like nineteen forty five, the United yeah, States was basically the, the United States and yeah. Britain the United States and Britain together were um, removing cities off the face of the earth on like a daily occurrence between Germany and between German cities and between Japanese cities. Well, that same dynamic happened in the Korean War, except um, worse. <laughs> except worse, if you if you can if you can imagine. Um, you know, there was the, the reason why the North Korean army, like most of the North Korean army, is underground. They're in um, you know, there there's. Four, I think there's around 45,000 different bunkers in North Korea. Those bunkers were all built during the Korean War because they were being bombed to death. They, they were just being constantly being bombed. Um, so when we get into that stuff, I think it will it will be um, real interesting. And I guess is maybe a little bit of a preview of the future episodes. Uh, but that's all I have to say. Anything else to wrap this thing up? No, I'm good. Um, but yeah, I think I think this this series will help explain why. North Korea is the garrison state it is. Um, all right. So if you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure that you rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support our show. Rate and review if you're listening on Apple Podcast, And also if you're listening to Spotify, rate and review, uh, rate us five stars. Help us grow. And then you can also support us on Patreon. Um, the link is in the notes. And uh, you can join our Slack community where we continue these conversations. Uh, anything else? Yeah, if you want to uh, see a picture of me flipping off the statue of Juan Ponce de Leon, that's that's how you have to do. That's all right. You're being a little account. too anti-Italian for my taste right now. <laughs> um, all right, peace, guys. Peace. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.